Welcome to Call Jeshurun, a podcast from Temple B'nai Jeshurun, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshurun is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please do visit us at tbj.org. My name is Cantor Lucy Fishbein. I am the cantor at TBJ, Temple B'nai Jeshurun. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with my teacher and mentor, Cantor Benji Ellen Schiller. Cantor Schiller has been a professor at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, in the School of Sacred Music for over 30 years. She currently serves as the Rabbi Lawrence A. Hoffman Professor of Liturgy, Worship, and Ritual, and is Professor of Cantorial Arts, and is preparing for her retirement at the end of this school year. In her many years of leadership, she has been a teacher to all cantorial and rabbinic students who have come through the New York campus and has touched the lives of so many, including mine. Benji is an exceptional and prolific composer of Jewish music, a faculty member of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and serves as cantor at Beit Am Shalom Synagogue in Westchester, where her husband, Rabbi Les Bronstein, is the rabbi. It was an honor and a privilege to sit down with Cantor Schiller and hear her speak about her journey and her legacy, as well as her approach to the cantorial arts. It was so moving for me to hear her articulate her vision for the future of cantorial studies and the cantorate. And as one of her students and mentees, just the ability to sit in her presence and soak up her wisdom was a true privilege for me. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Okay, hi Benji. Well, hi Lucy, Cantor Fishbein, <laughs> Cancer Schiller. It's such a treat to be here in your office. Um, for those listening, I am here at HUCJIR in New York. I am here today for the recital of our current cantorial intern, Erev Chazan Becky Mann, um, which was absolutely gorgeous and exquisite. And I feel like actually a really great setup to this conversation because it was all focused on the legacy of Debbie Friedman and the way her music has impacted the Jewish world and Jewish prayer. And I am sitting before one of my mentors and teachers who also has been instrumental, pun intended, um, in shaping the cantorate as it is today. And I would say probably as it will be for many years to come. Um, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation and get to, as I said in the elevator to someone, um, just an excuse to sit with you for an hour or so, <laughs> probably less. Um, and so I would love, Benji, if you could just sort of tell us, you know, um, your, what was your journey to the Cantorate? What landed you um, in this career? And then we'll talk about what your career has been like. But start, start from the beginning and you can decide what the beginning is. <laughs> thank you so much for your interest in this. And first, also, thank you for doing these podcasts and for caring <laughs> and for really bringing out the personal stories of so many of us in this profession. We're colleagues and we know a lot about each other in a limited capacity. Yeah. And to be able to share even this with you personally, recorded or not, yeah. is a gift. Yeah. So my thank pleasure. you for asking. And of I'll course. try to be focused. That's, <laughs> That's okay. Not my talent. <laughs> I tend to wander. That's okay. Um, so 
I bet you were exactly the same. Music was inevitable for me. Mm. Um, my parents, my mother's alive, my, my father's deceased, were tone deaf mathematicians. But <laughs> the first time that I was playing with a friend and I found the piano, the friend's mother called my mother and said, you must get her a piano. There's mm. no music in our house. It turns out we have musical family. Um, so music was my way of expression always. And I uh, took piano lessons and, and um, actually didn't quit and was going to actually think, consider being a pianist and then became a composer and along the way played guitar and learned guitar and started to write music. So a few pivotal experiences that emotionally touched me, mm-hmm. that connected me to Jewish music. Number one, as I told you, I tend to wander in my speaking, and I do that as a composer. Mm-hmm. I, I just emote and try to you know, express and channel um, prayer, gratitude, sorrow, mm-hmm. whatever the emotion uh, through music and always have. My brother became bar mitzvah. Um, I was 15 at the time, and because I'm a girl, there weren't many, if any, very few bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. So I didn't become bat mitzvah, so it was a big deal when he mm. did. And wow. to express my love and excitement uh, and awe of this in our family, I wrote my first piece, mm. which actually is a published setting of uh, the text May the Words. It's funny, but that was for me um, something special. And it's just funny that it, it has a life of its own now. And yeah. I remember standing in front of the congregation and singing it and really feeling that I could share my love and my admiration for what this is. I didn't know much. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Hebrew. That was one. And that it was received, that I could speak and it was received through the music. And another, shortly thereafter, uh, um, in studying classical piano and then folk guitar, I found Kutz Camp. Mm. I just got lucky. And my world opened up. I wasn't one of the cool kids, but when you're at Kutz Camp, you can be loved and appreciated and heard and seen in whatever, however you present yourself. So I learned to be a song leader. And I had phenomenal teachers. Doug Mishkin, mm. Mary Lovinger Arian were two on the top of my list. And from that experience, I was able to contribute to community as a teenager and also be a leader and uh, bring my, the love that I felt at my brother's bar mitzvah, also bring the love of my experience of Judaism as a teenager where the community is a, just a field of loving expression and support and acceptance. And the music was electric and fun. I'm a few years younger than Debbie Freeman Alea Shalom. She was writing, Jeff Klepper was writing, Music of Israel. It, like now, was a burgeoning of creativity. Mm. Um, and I kind of found myself as a Jew and found myself as a young woman and also kind of finding myself as a Jewish musician, not knowing fully how that would be expressed. Mm. And then it was my moment of deciding what to do professionally. I 
went to college studying classical voice, composition, and classical piano. My next moment was finding the Zamir Chorale of Boston. I was at BU. Mm -hmm. And that was pivotal because it opened up a world of Jewish music, mm -hmm. of a variety of styles, folk repertoire, classical, old Chazanut, Israeli, Yemenite, um, and each piece, whatever the style, was treated with reverence mm. and seriousness. Um, I noticed that. So the, what, the dichotomy of word, or just the contrast between a folk piece and a classical piece, where there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of attitude, there was none. Mm. We made beautiful music and we made prayer in our performances, I know it. And the conductor, Josh Jacobson, Dr. Joshua Jacobson, was one of my um, most important teachers and models. Um, another way that Zamir Koral opened up my world is it wasn't the Reformed Jewish community only. Mm. It was a mix. Right. So I was able to be on retreat as a Zamir Koral soprano, where we went over Shabbat. And there was no writing. We didn't have iPads. We had music. Right. We would use our pencils, but not on Shabbat. Never seen that before. And after a meal, we sang the full Birkat Hamazon. Never heard that before. And again, where there, ha in my mind, there was a perception of Orthodox Jewry being them. Mm. And here, everyone was together in community. Like with the music, there was an acceptance and. What do we have to accommodate? Not writing in our music, um, but having wonderful Shabbat meals and lots of rehearsing, but mostly by ear. I learned about Shabbos through Zamir in a different way. All through this time, as I got into my mid-twenties, I was singing as a song leader in synagogue religious schools and as a song leader in synagogues. Um, and then eventually I met my husband and we got married and he got into rabbinical school. And I left my, by this time, my master's program in voice mm. and my voice teacher. I was kind of finally coming into myself as a singer, but he got accepted to rabbinical school and off we went. And that was the next big moment for me, mm. being in Jerusalem, being part of the HUC community being in Kita Aleph, which is the beginning level of Hebrew, <laughs> yes. and working my tail off and loving it. Mm. And Les and I, Les happens to be quite musical also, we would um, have Shabbat and lead the tefillot in different progressive synagogues in Israel. They would put us up for Shabbat. And it was thrilling. There was no cantorial program in Israel, so I was part of kind of the rabbinic community, so after that year, that was 82 to 83, we came to New York for less to continue his studies, and I was going to continue my studies in classical voice. And the next big moment for me was a year later. I got myself ready to audition for the Manhattan School of Music. And I was standing on the stage for the callback audition, trembling in my boots. And there was something about the audition which helped clarify for me what they were looking for was a beautiful voice. 
They were looking for an instrument. They were looking for a talent. They were looking for presence. But they weren't looking for spiritual presence. They weren't so interested in the person I was. They were more interested in what I brought in my singing. Mm -hmm. And I don't fault them for that. But when I got up there to sing that day, I wanted to sing into their eyes and tell them the story. I was Susanna and the Marriage of Figaro. And they were more interested in just my vocal technique. And when I walked out of that audition, it became quite clear that this wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be able to share um, something from, that for me was emotionally and spiritually richer than that. I love the music. I respect the music. Um, but I didn't look back from that day on. And Larry Hoffman, Dr. Lawrence Hoffman, was a monumental in my learning, um, sat down with me and had a conversation and asked me, point blank, so if you're not looking to become the greatest singer or composer, what are you looking to do? What, what do you care about? And little by little, over the course of the conversation, I realized about bringing a spiritual presence in people's lives mm -hmm. through music making a community feel invited, which I saw at Kutz Camp, I saw at the Zamir Chorale, I saw at my synagogue when I was growing up, but not through the music necessarily. Um, and I saw with kids, but I didn't know that kind of invitation and inclusivity could be in a synagogue of adults. I had That I hadn't seen exactly. And because Larry is a persuasive and trusted mentor, I took a risk and came to HUC. Mm -hmm. And my dear friend Kendra Ellen Dreskin was a year ahead of me, so I figured if Ellen, also with a song-leading background, was going to give this a shot, I would too. But they were not really mentors. There were just a couple of the kind of Kendra I was hoping I was imagining maybe I could be, mm. or the kind of Jewish music I was hoping to write. I wasn't dead set upon being a cantor. I knew I wanted to write Jewish music. And my final early moment of my world opening up, that is something that changed my life and transformed me, was being a student at the Hebrew Union College. Then it was called the School of Sacred Music. Now it is, of course, the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music. I loved being a Cantorial student. I loved learning about liturgy and learning the Nusach. I loved learning about how to chant from the Torah. Mm -hmm. All the things I didn't learn at my bat mitzvah and so much more. I kind of found myself as a Jew and a musician and it all came together and there was no separating. And when I got up to lead in the tefillot, in the services here at school, I, can't, I was fully alive. Mm. And I was one of those students who came to the service every day. That was one of the most meaningful part. My being here was being with a community, praying together, as at Kutz Camp, but now a little bit more mature, a little bit more diverse. And uh, I became a cantor, and at that point we were not ordained, we were invested. This is 1987, and I didn't know what I was going to do next, and it turned out I never left. I'm here to this day. <laughs> it's now 1987, and we're now at 2000, and 
23, so you can do the math. It is 36, 36 years. I was hired to the faculty um, after graduating, and I was lucky about that, very, very lucky. Um, as I had shared earlier, Les, my husband, um, rabbinic student, now a rabbi, we realized that two congregations and one family was not going to be ideal for us and how we right. wanted to raise our family. Um, but the other part is it was time for a younger presence at the school. So I got very lucky. Mm. So I was looking. I wasn't sure what I was looking to do, but I didn't think I was going to be a cantor in a congregation and also be married to the rabbi of a congregation. So it was not just the convenience. In the end, it was I wanted to give back to HUC and I wanted to give back to the Jewish world. I didn't think I had much to teach, and it took me years to kind of cultivate what uh, might be the next generation of cantorial studies would look like um, and what I could contribute, what others could contribute, and especially as a woman, which was something new. And as you're talking about being a woman senior cantor in your congregation, we are traversing new ground. And that's not always easy, and it's not always apparent where we need to go. But I've been very, very blessed. This has been an incredible career for me. And it turns out just this very time, I'm anticipating stepping down from my tenure track position. I'm the first tenured faculty member of the Cantorial School and one of the first tenured women faculty members, maybe the very first on the New York campus. Wow. Um, it's been my privilege and my honor to be able to be a mentor and a guide and a teacher and a friend to cantors and rabbis, um, and I cannot think of any way to serve the Jewish community that would have been more of an honor than this. And it just shows you, it wasn't necessarily what I had planned to do with my life, yet I never looked back, and I felt so incredibly gra grateful and honored. And what this career has given me the opportunity to do is to continue composing which is also very important to me. So I... Becky and I were laughing because she came into my office the other day to ask me a question, and we realized that your songbook was sitting on my piano, so your face was just sort of staring back at us, and we were like, hi, Benji. <laughs> <laughs> so you are very much a presence in my office and in my life, not only through your music, but just through your music Thank book. You. Um, you. You said so many really interesting things, I, and speaking of wandering, I could take us down a, whole, a, a few different roads, but... Um, I want to go back to something that you said in light of what you just remarked upon in terms of the relative newness of the female cantorate and um, I would say the cantorate that is not exclusively male in general um, and the lack of, of role models and mentors and what that felt like to be starting a career where you were really, you and your colleagues and your friends were sort of blazing a trail um, for the kind of cantors and Jewish spiritual leaders that you needed um, when you didn't necessarily see them around you and what that was like. And then the second part of the question is just in terms of, you know, I'm thinking so much about the fact that you're saying that you part of the reason you wanted to work here at HUC was to give back and thinking just about the exponential legacy that you have left and the way in which you have touched so many lives and le Jewish leaders, you know, Benji teaches not only cantorial students, but rabbinical students as well. And so, you know, there is 
not a student that passes through the New York campus who has not been affected by your what you have to teach. So to hear you say when you first started um, that you didn't know what really you had to offer is um, laughable to me, but also I, you know, I, that sense of imposter syndrome, it's, it's, it's good to know that even the greats like you have that as well and had that in your, in your life. Um, so yeah, I'm just interested to hear about sort of what it felt like to be blazing that trail. And then also as you moved through your career and became more established here as a professor, how you think about approaching, you know, knowing that you're teaching the future leaders of the Jewish community and giving them that permission to cultivate their own future as well. Mm -hmm. So how, how you approach that, that feels mm -hmm. like a very weighty task. So I'm curious how you approach it. I'll begin an answer and please help me. Sure. If I, again, if I, um, if I don't focus exactly on, because it's such a wonderful question, the second part of your question. And I, 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 and the first as well, and I'll start there. The imposter syndrome, you know, for anyone who is not arrogant and anyone who steps into any career is inevitable. How do you embody this profession, whether it's something you've dreamed of becoming or being or something you have great respect or maybe not something you're particularly, you know, in awe of, but yet you have to, you know, hold a role and serve mm -hmm. in a particular way. Um, and for me, when I mentioned the teachers who were impactful, and I mentioned just a few, and then mentioned um, earlier about how much I loved being a student in the Cantorial School. My teachers helped me understand how important teaching is. And so I remember Cantor Lawrence Avery, Zichronoli Vracha, one of my coaches and model cantors, a traditional cantor. Um, and I remember coaching with him in his synagogue. I would drive to New Rochelle on Fridays and coach with him for one semester. He was very medactic, meaning very exacting about the music I was going to sing and very passionate about it. But he did it in a way where he came to life. So it wasn't about being, just being a perfectionist, which he was. It was also about bringing integrity and sensitivity and artistry and also authenticity to our tradition. So those lessons were impactful, but what was equally so is watching him sing. And I remember he was all of maybe four foot 11, tiny man, monumental presence. And he was giving, um, he was singing a piece of Chazanud in a recital as we often do here at the school. And when he walked up to the piano, all he had was a little index card with the words. Because in Jewish tradition, it's not about memorizing. You really want to stand before the words. So here he was. He had the words. It was a piece he wrote. A traditional dramatic piece of cantorial artistry. Mm. I could barely breathe as he sang. The words came to life. The ebb and flow of the phrases, the dynamics, the passion. And I don't remember what the prayer was about, but there was intensity. And there was a sense of yearning. And I just, he surrendered to it. So I learned from such great teachers who cared about the integrity of the cantorial art, but also about bringing themselves to it. And they modeled that. So that's one part of it. The other is 
teachers like Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman, whom I mentioned before, Rabbi Norman Cohen, just to name two, Cantor Helene Reps, who not only taught from a place of striving for integrity and quality, but they also model what it is to be a mensch, what it is to be a generous person. They were teachers who met the student where they are. And as I matured in my teaching, I realized that that is a gift I can give students to help them kind of find themselves by meeting them, honoring them, and helping them find that place inside themselves where they could then not just sing and lead prayer, but be fully realized um, as a spiritual leader. Uh, as a spiritual presence. Also, to be able to receive the prayer, to understand the prayer or the text. So it's partly about empowering students by being there for them. And that's a, that's a precious gift, to be able to help students open up their minds and their souls to what it is to be spiritually engaged, artistically present, um, and then out of that place of not being afraid of being who one is, not having imposter syndrome, I want to sing it like Cantor Avery. Of course you do. <laughs> I want to sing it like Debbie Freeman. Of course you do. But how can you bring the best of who you are with the tools we'll help provide for you and make it your own? Because that actually is what is going to help the Jewish people. That is what's going to empower you to be a leader for kids, for adults. Be able to stand in front of a family who is grieving and bring them some sense of presence and love. To be able to stand in front of a wedding couple and allow them to feel this moment fully. You have to kind of dig deep to find it in yourself, to find that empathy, that sensitivity. And the teachers and my mentors and my rabbis and my cantors in my young life had done that for me. Oh, I wanted to give that back to them. As far as kind of paving a new road, mm -hmm. that's something, if one thinks about it, I think you get lost. Yeah. Because the more you think about it, um, the more you question it, the more you wonder if it's presumptuous or not. I'll give one example. There are many workshops at Cantorial School. This is how kind of we learn the musical trade. Um, we learn in a classroom where the teacher sings and the students repeat and we listen to each other and we fine tune and we talk about the liturgy and then we perform it again and that's what a workshop is, kind of like a master class. There were many of those in cantorial performance. We did not have a workshop in engaging the congregational voice. That was kind of presumed to be part of the package of this new cantor, but we didn't have studies in that department. So my dear, dear colleague, Mary Lovinger-Arian and I, who was the same Mary Lovinger-Arian who was my song leader at Kutz Camp, who was on the faculty here and about to retire as well, we thought about how to formulate a workshop on the artistry 
of engaging the congregation. How to use the song leading skills of invitation, of thinking through a progression of music that flows one to another as in a service, um, of when the congregation and how the congregation can sing and find their voice, but also how they can feel welcome, all of that, all of that that you, Lucy, have mastered, that you personify in the cantor you are. And we were able to design a course. And the first few years of that course, I remember it was not a requirement, it was an elective, and rabbinical students and cantorial students took it, and there was pushback. Hmm. Really, you want the congregation to sing that much? My congregation sings all the time. I'd like a little break, some student I remember once said. And others, you know, this was still at the time when there was some friction about different musical styles and what had authenticity mm. and what should be the Jewish sound. Are we doing too much music that people pejoratively call camp music? Are we dumbing down the quality? Or are we staying so formal that people don't have access? And is there nothing in between? So little by little, in this course and many others, we were trying to express that there could be a middle road that could involve artistry and the great music and also the music of this time and place, which is communal, it is informal, uh, it has playfulness, it has electricity and life, it also has, not all of it, all the time, a refreshing simplicity where the performance ex itself is not the focus, but rather the prayer, the simple act of singing the niggin, over and over. There's something that, in those moments, something that can open up inside one's spirit, one's soul, one's heart. When you're not thinking about how beautiful it is, or how new it is, or how interesting it is, but rather, you're singing Misha Berach, and everyone around you is singing. And you can be comforted by each other's voices, and calmed in your spirit, and electrified by the aliveness of the music. And the service can have an ebb and flow of a variety of modes and moods and tones and style. Sometimes the cantor will give a mesmerizing solo, uh, something that, you know, uh, the congregation just sits back and is inspired by and wouldn't want to sing. And in other moments, everyone's voice, whether on tune and whether they got the Hebrew, that's not the point. It's about praying together, singing together, forming a community in sound. Mm. So I'm not directly answering your question, but once this started to happen and there was more and more acceptance of this way that involves a variety of styles of music and types that, that we can redefine Jewish music to be embracive, embracing of the music of today, then it didn't feel as if it was a new road. It just felt that we were continuing down the road that had been paved for us. It was more about integration. And if I may, I want to give one more example. Please. 
some of that word integration. What we realized during Cantor Richard Cohn's time here as the director of the school and director extraordinaire of the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music is that students in the Cantorial program were learning a lot of things and a lot of courses, but not always connecting the dots, not the students, but the, but the curriculum wasn't always connecting the dots. Liturgy, history, musicology, repertoire, spiritual meaning, how to work, how synagogue functions. So we've been working a lot as in many other academic institutions on integration. Mm. Now the example I want to share with you, I'm very proud of, that it's a relatively new phenomenon here, is that the workshops, starting with the Shabbat workshop, which is second year student, right when they come back from Israel, in the Cantor, Cantorial program, they have a Shabbat workshop. This is now an integrated Shabbat workshop where the liturgy, the traditional style of davening, and the contemporary music, art song, and folk song, is all taught together. Wow. In addition, with the musicological understanding of the, of the material. So you have three teachers in a three hour long workshop, or three of us. Uh, Kenter Josh Breiser teaches the traditional chazanut. Dr. Gordon Dale teaches musicology, the meaning behind the music, and the modes, and the liturgy. And I teach the contemporary style, much of which is, much, much of which is the art song music and also the folk material. And we put it together, and we find ways that it speaks together. I'm going to come back and take the class again. <laughs> I tell you, I feel like I'm sitting at the feet of my colleagues as yeah. we realize that these are not disparate areas of study, mm. but that studying the Shabbat service liturgically and musically, one has to look at it all. Yeah. And so for the final exam each semester, a student chooses a section of a service and sings a variety of repertoire and connects it all and leads the whole service, including giving a teaching about a particular prayer. It goes in and out of traditional and contemporary styles, sometimes with an electric guitar, sometimes with a piano, cool. sometimes without any instrument. Um, and we are trying to help them find their voice in the, in the many traditions of Jewish music. And we're encouraging creativity. Um, they can improvise. If there's someone who comes with a choral background, they can use that. And just last semester, for the first time in my memory, in this school, a student in their first practicum where they perform in front of the whole cantorial school chanted traditional chazanut with an electric guitar. Amazing. And he did it beautifully. And he got a standing ovation. Very cool. That's very cool. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm, it's so interesting to think about the way that it's not that the curriculum that you're taking anything away, but you're thinking about the way you're presenting it to the students differently. Yes. And, you know, I think today today's right. recital was a really great example of that, you know, because although Becky sang pieces from very different types of music, some much contemporary, mostly contemporary, but different types of contemporary music. Yes. And then she did one piece of real, you know, chazanut, can yes. a cantorial, yes. classical cantorial piece. Yes. 
but it didn't actually sound all that disparate to use your word from what had come before and what came after because of the way that it all felt like it was a through line because she really I mean she must have passed your class because she did a good job of, of weaving weaving it together in that way and I, I was struck by that actually I, I when I saw it on the program I thought oh is that going to stick out like a sore thumb and it didn't at all mm-hmm. um, and so I thought that was a very interesting mm. you know and I think that's something that those of us who are in pulpit positions you know often lament that we don't know how to bring in some of that bigger chazanut or cantorial music uh, because it feels out of place in a Shabbat service and sometimes it is out of place mm. um, but what you're talking about is really helping to weave a, th- a, a thread as opposed to just sort of one spool of, of mm. thread over here and one spool of thread over here and maybe we'll connect the dots in a recital or in a concert or something so oh. I think that's very interesting I um, agree and yeah. You know, in planning a service, we have a script that's already been formed for us. And we have communal expectations, and we're on a schedule, and um, there are a lot of different criteria that go into the decisions that are made. And um, we're thinking about the experience for the one who walks in the door for the first time, and the regular who comes every single Friday night. Um, Becky conceived of this recital as a spiritual journey, and as you said, we could feel it and sense it and so the music all had that context and that backdrop so beautifully done but the one thing I want to say about a service is that with this Shabbat workshop we encourage students to think about a palette if that is the word of colors that perhaps if an entire prayer sung to a traditional cantor recitative is just too much could you take a section of a piece, a section of a tune, and put it, as you said, in a new form and use that and start slowly? Because first of all, also with, with uh, our services, language is an impediment. So how can we bring people into finding you know, a kernel of something in a prayer and just doing that? Um, so each of them becomes, and we all become composers and arrangers, because we're thinking all the time about the spiritual experience, the prayer experience, um, dynamically, not just musically, spiritually, communally, and how can we infuse a variety of colors, maybe not a whole piece. You're right, that is a big challenge of today. Mm-hmm. And when a piece is more, when a musical setting has more complexity to it, where does that belong? Mm. How can we put perhaps a little taste of something that is has a transcendence to it, or perhaps it's just challenging and different, and maybe it doesn't resolve perfectly. You know, it doesn't have just an easy listening feel. There are moments, how about a prayer for peace at a difficult time when it's not a beautiful sing-along mm-hmm. um, beginning, middle, and end, but something that really has some angst in it mm. and some struggle because I think that really speaks to us today and we need to have that in our tefillah as well. You're also talking about, I think, recognizing the varied tapestry of human experiences in the room, right? Like 
our congregants don't all walk in with in the same mood carrying the same load. So some people are there because they're observing a Kaddish. Some people are there because they're observing a Simcha. Others are there because they had a tough day and they want to come and sit in community. And so, you know, we can't speak to every emotion and every piece of music that we traverse through a prayer service. But part of what, you know, I when I think about the lessons that you've taught me that I think about each week when I make my cue sheets is thinking about the arc of the service and also, you know, giving people those experiences so that if one moment perhaps doesn't speak to where they are in that moment in their life, that, you know, there will be an, an ebb and a flow a few moments later for them to connect to. Um, you know, there's a tradition that if you're there for, to say Kaddish, if you're there as a mourner, that you're actually, you don't enter the room until after L'chadodiv. And often because L'chadodiv is so joyful, we don't do that in our community. But I think about that during the service when I'm singing a sort of up-tempo L'chadodiv and I'm looking out in the crowd and I see someone who I know is there because they've had a, a loss. Sometimes it feels that, I feel that tension. And so it's important to have those peaks and valleys in the experience because everyone is coming with something different on their shoulders. A variety of entry points in something that would feel true Mm. and genuine and could speak to the mourner. Yeah. I'm thinking about something you said at the very beginning of the moment of standing, which it almost could be a a, a vignette from a movie, um, of standing on the stage for your callback audition and sort of realizing in the moment that that, that this was not your future. Um, and I think part of what we're talking about just to sort of bring the conversation full circle is that the human aspect of, of the connecting power of music, that it's not just about buying a ticket and coming to sit and listen to whatever the director of the performance has curated for you, but that as cantors and as spiritual leaders, we're actually thinking about human connection and not because we've decided it's what you need, but because it's actually what you need and because Judaism tells us it's what we all need mm-hmm. and finding ways to allow people to make that connection with our tradition mm-hmm. through the connecting power of music. Mm-hmm. And um, my final question for you with regard to your, your composing, which is, is just so exquisite, um, is how you approach that creative process. Is it that you have a a text that you start with? Is it that a tune comes to you? Is it a little bit of both? How do you approach that? And and are you thinking about the way the piece is going to be used when you're writing it? Perfect question. <laughs> I'm going to start with one thing you said, um, which is, you know, providing these entry points for the plethora of needs in the congregation. And and, and and thinking about as you're singing that rowdy, upbeat, <laughs> playful lachadodi. There are times that what really speaks to people is, is quieter, is not being in their face, is allowing them some space. And I just wanted to say that. I remember. Yeah. I, don't, um, I don't have a specific moment, but after a very poignant niggin, um, with some of the difficulties and challenges going on in Israel, the niggin was about uh, bringing chesed, loving kindness and peace. And when the niggin was over, he just stood there a minute. And the silence was, for me, as a participant as well as a leader, what I needed to be able, when, when the music stops and the words stop. And the, and, and, but we've reached that moment together of, 
something beyond anything else, pure prayer. Composing. <laughs> um, sometimes I'm commissioned. That is, I'm asked to write a piece. Yeah. Sometimes I ask if I could write a piece. You and I were at a wedding of a, of a mutually very, very dear friend to us both. And to the congregation. Yeah. Cantor Jenimar. <laughs> and the one and only Becky Mann and I um, mischievously thought, let's write them a wedding song. Let's write Jenna and Zach a wedding song. Now, this is a delicate one, but as a composer, it's one of my favorites. Because if you would like to offer this, to a couple. First of all, I don't offer it to every couple. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know them that well necessarily, and it wouldn't be always appropriate in this case. What we said to them, and this is a, a very a precious part of uh, my life as a composer, and I say to a couple, a couple I love and know well, might there be a text that is a favorite of yours that perhaps represents something about your relationship. Maybe even a text from Jewish tradition, maybe it's from Song of Songs, maybe it's a poem, maybe it's a prayer, maybe it's from the Torah portion of the week you're getting married or when you met, or not Jewish. But is there, that, that's fine, is there a text that you would even consider maybe putting on your wedding ring or putting on your invitation? You're spending a lot of time thinking of the colors of the napkins and the flowers. What about us? you know, a, a verse. What about a verse? And I know how to do this because someone said it to me. And that was my rabbi, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Mm. He asked my husband and I, he didn't write us a piece of music. <laughs> He's not a composer. What's your piece? What's your text? And our text, Kol Dodihi Nezebaz, written inside our rings. And I sing it to my husband every Friday night at our table. Oh. And it's a very, very dear. It was a centering thing for us and has continued to be. So Becky and I went to Zach and Jenna and asked, and they came up with the most beautiful, beautiful text, and we wrote a piece that we sang at their wedding. It was um, a magical moment for all in the room. Oh, thank you. It certainly was for us. It was a, a total labor of love, no labor in it at all. As a composer, um, sometimes a choir... Uh, the choral conductor, because I, I write choral music often. I love writing choral music. Um, and one uh, will commission me. And I have many stories, many meaningful stories. I, don't, I know we don't have time for all of them. But I want to just cover some of the areas that you asked. Um, when I write a piece that someone hasn't asked for, and it's inspired by my own experience, one thing that's very important to me um, because I'm working with words, and most of my music is vocal, and most of my music is involved with language, is to first um, create a relationship with the words that such that the, I internalize the words, and I commune with them. And whether it's a prayer, or it's a, a biblical text, a poem, I want to feel those words and really, so I almost memorize them, I recite them over and over and over again. And I do that for two reasons. One, internalizing the words helps me feel the rhythm of the words, the feel of the words, the, 
the feeling of the sound of the words as much as their meaning. And when we're singing words, we want to sing them in a way where the inherent syntax and rhythm and expression is elevated rather than challenged by the music. You don't want the music to stiltify the words, but rather to bring them to life in an organic, natural way. That, Especially for our texts. Our mm -hmm. texts should be sung with reverence and a sense of how the words would be spoken. So that's one. The other reason I commune with the text is to create my own, I would say, emotional, spiritual relationship with them. Um, that relationship, when I can get to a place where it, it becomes so much a part of me um, that I, I, I kind of can't separate it and new meanings come out, that's when the music starts to come. And I find the act of writing to be often initiated from um, not a rational place, not a utilitarian place of how could this be sung. That has to be asked, but really from a place that is stream of consciousness, um, almost a dream state, when I get my mind out of the way. Mm. But my mind is very involved with the text before in creating that relationship. Not the relationship I should have, but the relationship that I'm pulled to have, that the text evokes in me. But then I just let it sizzle and that's um, Kendra Faith Stein Snyder's words. Let it sizzle. Let, let it, it sizzle, yeah. Yeah, right? Let it live. Yeah. So I remember writing an English Birkat Hamazon. Beautiful, beautiful words from the prayer book in Sudbury, Massachusetts, um, Congregation Bethel, um, where I, um, my husband and I were married. Beautiful English translations. And the formulation of Baruch Adonai Elohinu Melech Olam for the Birkat Hamazon as translated as Holy One of Blessing, your presence fills creation. So it's just a different way of, beautiful way in my opinion of expressing Baruch Adonai, Holy One of Blessing, your presence fills creation. And I did commune with those words and I loved those words. I was in awe of the poet who wrote them. But I felt presumptuous to set Baruch Atah, God's name in English or Hebrew to the words and I remember I sat with them and sat with them I wanted to sing them but it had to be true and it had to be real and it had to be meaningful and couldn't be playful and it couldn't be it's, those words are so important but the music shouldn't shout of self-importance and on the Metro North train as I'm just kind of in a dream state I came up with Holy One, Holy One, Holy One of Blessing. I remember that just came when I got out of the way of thinking about it. Mm. And then the song wrote itself. Because when I happened upon that, it was from somewhere deep inside me, and that's what I needed to say. And often when we are creating, whether it's art, or a relationship, or an idea. The idea, the relationship, the sound, often is right in front of us, but we can't see it. And so by 
getting that kernel of something so simple and so real, almost childlike, that's what I wanted and needed to say and I didn't know. Mm. And once that happened, then the song kind of grows out of itself, but it needs to have a kernel. It needs to have something that is the essence of the text. That's one example. Um, and that's called Grace, and it's all in English, and that's a, a piece that was formative for me in my writing. Mm. Um, but it, again, came out of a not a conscious place, really. And if I can, one more example of writing. Please. This was a commission. Mati Lazar, who is the conductor of the New York Samir Chorale, and with whom I've worked for many years and written some pieces here and there and sung with at the North American Jewish Choral Festival. He gave me a call. It was the end of October in 2001. I remember because it was the end of the baseball season and my husband and I were watching the game. But when Mati calls, I don't let it ring. I pick up because he's <laughs> a close colleague and teacher. And Mati asked me if I'd consider thinking with him about creating a piece for the Zamir Hanukkah concert that year, Hanukkah 2001, that was in a Jewish and American response to 9-11. They had planned their concert for the year prior, and they were doing a beautiful array of music, and then the world changed. And they wanted a response in some way that would speak in some way. And Mati said, Maybe, maybe you'd write something. And I have an idea. You know, on the Liberty Bell, it says, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And that comes from Leviticus, right in the center of the Torah. Ukrachem dror ba'aretz. It's about the Jubilee year. That in the 50-year Jubilee, seven of seven years, slaves are released, the land is released, and we have this joyful renewal of life. It's a taste, I think, of the messianic time. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's an American image and sound as well. And that's what Martin Luther King would say, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. This is all, that's Amos. It's all biblical and it all comes from a variety of traditions. Could you write something that we would sing that night? And I was honored and humbled and afraid. But because I, like everyone else, had gone through the trauma and was continuing to go through the trauma of the experience, and we were all kind of deadened, I did think about what the American Jewish audience needed to hear, and maybe what the American audience needed to hear. And I wrote a three-movement piece, and the last movement is what's still performed here and there. Um, and it's like a gospel piece. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first performance at Merkin Hall in New York City with Samir, and I was lucky enough to be the soloist. And we sang in the middle of the piece. Justice shall roll down like the water. Justice shall roll down like the water. And the piece goes on from there. And I remember the smiles of the faces. And I remember the clapping that started to happen. And it was like a revival 
the peace didn't start there. It got to that place. And there were many tears, for me at least, uh, in being able to be to channel some of that emotion, some of the terrible grief and loss, and also the desire for hope. And renewal for the community in remembering the tragedy and trying to put one foot in front of the other and move forward. And we all know that music can revive our spirits. But it has to be, as I'm thinking about and teaching a student, you have to meet, we have to meet each other where we are. Mm. We can't get to that revival before doing the work. But it was an honor for me, as I said, to be able to channel some of that and have a relationship with these words and think about an expression that would move people and give people, even temporarily, a sense of hope and possibility and joy. So, as a composer, it's my relationship with a text, with an emotion, with a prayer, with an idea, and then allowing that energy to kind of flow through mm. and getting out of one's way. And I really do believe, and I know it to be true, that we are all vessels of something larger than us. And you can call it, well, it's your piece, Benji, but you know what? This is not my voice. It's something that I give room for and I feel like I'm a, a vessel to channel some, something deeper in in the work that I do as a composer. And um, to say it's a, a gift and a privilege is obvious and, and, and true, but also it's a spiritual practice of listening, of being present to the moment and the words, and allowing the music to be the language of that, what we might call, what I would call God's presence in my life and to be able to give that away to another person is the greatest gift of my life. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful way to bring our formal conversation to a close. I'm so grateful for the time and for the opportunity to sit and learn from you once again in this sacred building. And thank you so much for sharing your story with our community. Thank you, Lucy. And mazel tov to you and the congregation. Thank you. And thank you for including me in this incredible celebration and for having a deep conversation and a lot of listening together. May we continue to do so over many years to come. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Benji. <laughs> thank you for listening to this edition of Call Jeshurun. If you would like to learn more, visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement. We really hope to see you soon.